Hello, hello, and welcome to Higher Justice, a podcast where we talk about power, privilege, and activism in higher education. I'm Dr. Nicole Martin. And I'm Dr. Ashley Sorrell. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Kefralyn Brown, an associate professor of cultural studies and education in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction at the University of Texas at Austin. In our interview, we focus on best practices for culturally responsive teaching. Dr. Brown shares with us how she has reshaped the classroom from this idea of a safe space into a classroom as a brave space. And she also offers insight into how privilege shows up in the classroom and how it can be disrupted through reflexivity. Dr. Kefralyn Brown is an Associate Professor of Cultural Studies in Education in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction at the University of Texas at Austin. She is the Elizabeth Glenadine Gibb Teaching Fellow in Education and has appointments in the Department of African and African Diaspora Studies, the Warfield Center for African and African American Studies, and the Center for Women and Gender Studies. Her research focuses on the sociocultural knowledge of race, teaching, and curriculum, critical multicultural teacher education, and the education of Black people in the United States. Dr. Brown has over 40 scholarly publications. Her recent book, published in 2016 by Teachers College Press, is titled After the At-Risk Label, Reorienting Educational Policy and Practice. She has received the AERA Division K Early Career Research Award and the Regents Outstanding Teaching Award, the highest honor given for excellent undergraduate teaching across the University of Texas system. Welcome, Dr. Brown. Thank you so much again for joining us today. Um, I wanted to take a moment to sort of frame our conversation around what's happening nationally um, in regard to discussions around trigger warnings in the classroom. Did you uh, have a chance to read about or listen to conversation about the letter from the Dean of Students at the University of Chicago uh, at the beginning of the summer? or at the beginning of the semester, rather? I scanned it, I I heard about it, and looked over uh, the statement very quickly. I didn't read it as closely as I would have liked, uh, but I also heard about it in the car driving to work on on the radio. The several uh, news stations uh, were talking about it, so I'm a bit familiar with it. Yeah, um, I wanted to ask you and to hear your thoughts about how do you feel about the national conversation around trigger warnings in the classroom um, and this idea of safe spaces? So this is sort of, it's it's a contradiction and a a paradox in some ways. And, And I think that teaching actually, like all of life, ends up in the middle of contradictions. Mm-hmm. So when I when I started to hear about this idea of trigger warnings, I, I, I sensed that it was coming from a place different uh, from how I had in some ways been taught or had learned how to teach about um, difficult, contentious topics or topics that are often uh, challenging for students to um, engage in 
in a, in a sort of open and honest way. So when I heard about trigger warnings, I, I assumed that to be, you know, this thing that a teacher is expected to do to warn students that something controversial is coming. And in some ways, I sort of understand why there was some pushback at that, right? Yeah. That there should be um, learning should be about discomfort, right? Often the things that we learn we learn when we are when we are put in places where we have to sort of stretch our thinking, right? I see that with my young children when they're struggling with math problems, right? There's an uncomfortableness um, often that accompanies learning, right. and. So I understand the pushback, but at the same time, I also understand that as a teacher, when we go into a classroom, that if students don't feel like the space is one in which they can actually be themselves, where they can be open, um, where they can feel like they can express their ideas without there being some negative retribution placed on them, mm-hmm. then you're probably going to create a space where they'll feel shut down and and not want to learn. So I think there's a paradox. So for me, when I when I think about trigger warnings, I, I, I assume, I think that I've, I've probably always given them, but didn't know that that's what they were. Um, and by trigger warning, I see that as letting students know upfront that this is what our class is going to discuss. And I know from my experience teaching these kinds of courses that for some people, they can be anxiety provoking. Sometimes students feel guilty. Sometimes students feel angry. And I sort of walk through the various feelings that people may have. And then I try to double back around what does it mean to have those feelings and and how do those feelings fit within this learning space, how it's expected that those feelings will come up and that it's okay for those feelings to be there. So in some ways, I guess I've always engaged in trigger warnings, but perhaps not for the same reasons or with the same intentions um, that they're being discussed mm-hmm. now in schools and universities. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point, Dr. Brown. Um, and I would like to stay with this idea of safe spaces for um, a moment. I was wondering um, if you could talk a little bit about your thoughts on, quote unquote, a safe space for students. Um, and if this is the type of learning environment we want to create for students and how instructors might go about creating such a space to where uh, students can engage in um, in dialogue around uh, controversial controversial or difficult issues. So the, the the idea of a safe space is is interesting and also again another sort of contradiction and 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 is filled with paradox because when we talk about a safe space, the question we need to ask is who is the space safe for? Mm-hmm. And I think in general. When I think about multicultural, critical multicultural education, especially around teacher education, there's often an assumption that many of our white students who overwhelmingly populate our teacher education programs, white female students um, who come from middle class backgrounds, come into our classes and they don't have or possess the kind of content or experiential knowledge that's needed in order to um, work effectively 
with students of color or students that may come from um, a different socioeconomic background than themselves or that they grew up in. And that that space needs to be safe so that they will feel comfortable learning. Now, these are all assumptions, but I think that they're sort of built into some of the conversations around safe space. But at the same time, we have students of color who come into our classes, students who, for whatever reason, because of their identities, have been positioned against the norm, who are also going to sit in those classrooms. And is the safe is the space safe for them? So I think we have to ask the question, who is our space safe for? And help students to understand that sometimes one person's safety is another person's sort of dangerous place, mm-hmm. as well as the fact that safety is socially constructed. What one person might believe is safe because of the way that they were raised, the way that their parents and family members and community members engaged with them would not feel safe per se for someone else because they grew up in another kind of environment. And so even the notion of safe space, I try to spend time unpacking and thinking about since we are a social, my course deals with sociocultural issues. I think that's a perfect sociocultural construct to sort of unpack. And there, and there are several uh, people who have written about this very concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems to me that what you're talking about is a conflict of values in this in the construction um, of safe space, the way that we talk about it, um, and the way that it's ideologically um, sort of put together. Um, and so I'm wondering if, if the conversation around safe spaces is both paradoxical and and different depending on who is answering the question, if we're not teaching to create a safe space, what is our alternative? So I think if we if we don't question the idea about what constitutes a safe space in a classroom, per se. And I think we stand to reinforce the, the very power relationships and dynamics that we're trying to question and, and hopefully transform. We're trying to understand how inequalities operate. And even with, in, in, in my case, because I teach a course that is designed for people who will be going into the teacher education program, although a good number of my students will not be Uh, going into that program. Um, It's a learning environment. And and a a big part of what we talk about is how do teachers open up the possibilities to be an effective teacher and to give students an equitable opportunity to learn at the level of classroom instruction? And in what ways uh, do classroom practices um, close off those opportunities? And so the idea of a safe space, if you don't feel, if you feel like your voice isn't heard or if other voices trump your own because of their identities and fears that, you know, they may choose to not engage. And so we sort of tread very lightly in the class Mm -hmm. or we allow statements to be made that are inflammatory or are microaggressions, um, we can, we're shutting down 
the opportunity for everyone to get a quality and equitable educational experience. And so that's how I frame it in my room. And I think that that's what we lose out on. So I don't think that we need to move away from the idea of talking about a safe space. I actually think we need to interrogate it and help broaden what that means. Yeah. 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 In your um, kind of personal interrogation of a safe space and what that means, how has that either uh, how has that influenced your approach in the classroom? What kind of pedagogical interventions do you do or draw upon in your teaching to create uh, an equitable, equitable environment for students? So I have come to realize that there's a few things that need to be um, sort of put in place or, or, or I don't know if they need to be put in place. They have worked in, in my case. I think first is really being upfront about the class, what we are going to be addressing and the way that students often feel as they're moving through the class. Uh, students often come back and say that that was very helpful for them mm-hmm. because when they got to a place where they just felt despondent or they felt guilty or they felt angered, they knew that I recognize that those feelings are possible, will actually come up, and that I'm, 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 I'm affirming that they have those feelings. But also then saying, what does it mean to have those feelings in light of our uh, goals of trying to learn? So how do we not allow those feelings to impede the learning process? So talking about that, I think, is important. And then how one moves through that. Mm-hmm. I've also found that it's helpful to uh, historicize the, the the problems that we're talking about. So we can talk about you know contemporary manifestations of racism and how they're playing out in, on the, in a very visceral and uh, visual way in our in our in our in our in our country now. But there's a history behind that work, and I think helping students to understand some of those historical processes. Um, are important. And so I use a lot of history. Well, I used a bit, uh, I, I, I begin the course by, my course is by historicizing some of the issues that we'll be discussing. And then in terms of pedagogy specifically, I think it's important to have a, a, a wide variety of different approaches. So we uh, watch movies in my class and listen to music clip, uh, video clips, uh, video, uh, music videos, any kind of Uh, sort of way that I can bring in the larger popular cultural text to inform um, what we're talking about, I have found to be very useful and helpful. Um, In some ways, it's very real and accessible to students. And so I think that they get messages sometimes through those forms of media and those pedagogical tools that an article by itself doesn't easily convey. Uh Um, Uh I also uh, have students to spend time working both in small groups where they're able to try out their ideas with a group of people, a few few folks. Uh And then uh, we have large group discussions. I very rarely have a large group discussion before I've given them an opportunity to engage in small conversations Uh with either a partner or with a small group. Um, I also um, try to bring in other kinds of art, what what might be called arts-based pedagogical tools, 
we sometimes do collages, we draw, we um, um, go to the board and create visuals and uh, or models. Anything that I can do to break up what we've done so that I can keep it fresh and keep the students um, sort of anticipating what are we going to do today. I, I don't like to, to fall in the rut of doing the same thing. Sure. And I think that those create different kinds of openings for students. But I will say that at the crux and at the heart of what I do, no matter what I bring in pedagogically, is text and, and scholarly text. So we always go back to the theories and the research that we're looking at. But I try to have other means to open up their learning and their engagement with each other around that text so that it doesn't just turn into we're in here doing arts and crafts which you know students could easily think right but when we're constantly bringing that back to okay what theory are we talking about now and how are we doing it i think they make those connections great uh, dr brown i want to circle back to something you said about historicizing um historicizing your pedagogy and historicizing the process of pedagogy. When you um, are working with your students, those teachers, that those future teachers that you're working with, are they going to be going into um, a specific discipline in K through 12 education or are they responsible for teaching, you know, English and history and math and science? So it depends. The, the, the course that I teach at the undergraduate level is, uh, it is one of uh, a few courses that are required for all elementary students, excuse me, all students who are going into the elementary teacher education program. And so that would include people getting a certification early childhood up, up to sixth grade. So they may be a generalist teacher where they're teaching, they're expected to teach all of the content areas, or they may end up in a school where they will teach, say, um, they'll be the math and science teacher. It mm -hmm. just sort of depends on how the elementary school that they're going into is organized. But they are generally called a generalist teacher, which means they can teach all of the subject areas across early childhood to sixth grade. Sometimes I get students who are interested in going into the secondary program, but those students are not required to be in this particular course. So when they take the course, they are taking it as an elective. And uh, up to this point, I've had students who are planning on teaching science or math. So they're, in the, they're going in the STEM area, or they may be teaching a foreign language maybe a Spanish teacher or a German teacher. I've had a few students that come in that route as well. Right. And the course that you're teaching, um, you talk about how it's, um, it gives you a sociocultural entry into the process of historicizing um, pedagogical practices. But for those disciplines that you were talking about, or that we know aren't necessarily or aren't so explicitly aligned with processes of historicization, do you find it difficult to to do that work, that work that interrogates power dynamics, the work that interrogates systemic inequality with um, disciplines like science, math, um, as opposed to history or um, English? So in the undergraduate course, I haven't found that to be the case. I haven't had 
that many students who are coming in from the secondary program. Okay. My sense is also that if a secondary person chose to take that course, then they probably had um, a sort of predilection or a desire to have that content knowledge. So they, they probably wouldn't show a lot of resistance because again, it's not a re that is not a required course in their program. Now at the graduate level, I also teach a sociocultural foundations course. And of course, at the graduate level, we're not preparing people to become teachers. We're preparing people to either take on faculty positions in curriculum and instruction or to, to take on um, work in teacher education or in policy, or in some cases, we have students who will want to go back into industry. And so sometimes I have students who are not in one of the content area, uh, program areas in my, in, my, in my department. And because this is a required course for all of our PhD students, I've had a few instances where I've had some resistance, where I've had students who were not planning on becoming professors. They saw themselves going into industry, maybe doing work in um, some field of study that they did not see at all connected um, or related to issues, sociocultural issues. They didn't imagine themselves doing that work. It's been few and far in between, but I've had a few students who have pushed back. Um, I will say that in other courses that I've taught where I've had teachers, former teachers, or people who are in, um, say, the STEM fields or instructional technology or fields that are seen more as um, what we call hard sciences, which I think is a, is a laden word, a laden term. Um, sometimes there's an assumption that sociocultural issues don't play as important of a role at the content level because science is science, right? It's, it's sort of cut and dry. Math is, right. math is cut and dry. And so some of our conversations are around what does it mean to do um, equity work and social justice work in the classroom um, when this is your belief? And for some, um, and I think the field itself has struggled around well, perhaps the way that we deal with equity is to talk about how do we make, how do we give students more access? So it's about accessing content, but not necessarily transforming content. Mm -hmm. And I think we have more people who are now having those conversations that no, we need to really think about the content that we're teaching in um, non-humanities and non-social science-based courses and really think about how we might need to transform that. Mm -hmm. You know, this conversation is also making me um, think of the recent the research that's coming out about the rates of students of color, both male and female, getting um, suspended at higher rates than white students. And it seems like, you know, this course is imperative for future teachers to take in that part of what you're doing is challenging their perspectives and assumptions around race, social, and cultural inequality. Can you speak a bit to uh, the intervention you hope to make uh, on these future teachers through this course and how you, um, how you hope that they'll bring these lessons into their classrooms when they, um, when they enter the schools? Yes, well, I'll say that I'm, I am definitely humble enough to know that 
um, there's it's going to be difficult to do any deep transformative work in the way that people think about the world, think about themselves and their role as teachers uh, uh, in terms of tackling and addressing issues of power and injustice and inequity in their teaching yeah. over a 14 week right. you know, semester, right? So I teach my class once a week for three hours. And so we have a lot of concentrated time when, we're in, when we, we are together, but it's only about 14 times that we meet. And so I have had to make some hard decisions over the years, just some things that I've learned, that there are some things that I know that I probably won't be able to accomplish over 14 weeks. And so I'm going to do what I actually think I can do and hit those things that I think I can hit so that students will leave with some basic ideas that I think they can take with them as they go start and begin, you know, begin their, their formal teacher education program that they can add to and then expand from. And so in some ways I'm trusting that uh, what they get in, in, in the course with me, um, they will take with them and that will be the seed that, they, that, will, that will continue to grow. Um, I don't necessarily think that um, we, are, you know, we, can, we can make a social justice teacher in 14 weeks, but what, 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 what we can do is we can say, um, understand that there have been deep, there are deep inequalities both at, in our society and in our schools. And we have, they are sort of built into the, the foundation and structure of the society that, that we have come to know as the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, you as a teacher uh, have, you play a big role in how you enter into the work of teaching and if you understand that these inequalities exist, some of which are they are they are structural, they're institutional, they are much larger than the classroom, than the school, and then your and your specific pedagogy, but that your everyday decision making as a teacher either helps to re- reinforce those inequities mm-hmm. or seeks to transform them. Yeah, yeah. And if you understand that. And that the way that you think about your students, the communities that they come from, um, the cultural and racial groups that they are part of, the identities that they sort of bring with them into the classroom, um, are you know the beliefs you hold about those students is going to dramatically impact how you see them and how you work with them. And so you have to be on guard not to take in de- deficit-oriented perspectives about students and the families and communities that they come from. And that this is an ongoing, this is ongoing work. Um, it's something that you have to engage in deeply and that you have to be critically reflective of throughout the process of teaching. And that you need to constantly be thinking about how can I do this work and do it better. And then also recognizing the importance of connecting with other people who are also who have um, like-minded interests and who also care about teaching in 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 in, in, in inequitable ways and making connections with them so that you can do this work in a more robust way i think if they leave knowing those things just those things that i've laid out um maybe not even knowing how to do it but knowing that it's important to do it and that it's right. something that they right. need to be striving for if they walk away with that I am I am success. I, I, I feel that I have 
laid the groundwork and I'm, and I'm happy with that. Great. You Great. mentioned um, deficit um, oriented thinking. I'm wondering if you could expand on that a little bit, what that means. Yes. So um, when we say deficit oriented thinking, we're talking about having a belief or mindset that certain students are not successful academically or socially because of something they lack or their communities lack or their racial group lacks. It's something that they have a deficiency in. Sometimes those deficiencies have been leveled at at, uh, intelligence. Mm -hmm. So we have a a history of of, uh, social scientists arguing that some people just don't have the intelligence to be successful. And then those, those, those um, um, explanations were sort of, they were, they were, people pushed back against them um, and said, no, these, uh, you know, sometimes it has nothing to do with, the, you know, the, the intellectual capability of a, of a person. It has to do with um, what their group values or doesn't value the sort of norms that they've had access to the, uh, the, 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 the capital or experiences that they've had access to. And if they haven't had access to those things, um, then they're not going to be successful. Now that's a different way of thinking about, um, uh, achievement or success, but one is, one is genetic and one is cultural, right? Mm -hmm. And so, but they both still are operating um, with an implicit norm that's in place, that that there is a norm, there is a way you are supposed to behave, there is a way you are supposed to think. And if you don't think that way, if you don't behave in that way, then you, you somehow are lacking. And so what we know is that we place blame on individuals and cultural groups and communities. We don't question the implicit norm that is a part of that judgment making process. And further, we don't actually step back and question whether our own practices, whether our, uh, the ways that our schools and society is organized, we don't, we don't question whether those play a role in uh, diminishing opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, so defi- deficiency arguments essentially take the onus off of the educator, the teacher, off of the larger systems and institutions that we're a part of, and it places it solely on students and individuals, their families, their communities, um, to uh, fix problems that we know are are much, much, much larger than just individuals. That's great. Um, you were talking about the assumptions that are sort of embedded into the ways that we teach. And um, can you share with us an example of an assumption of you know, normative pedagogical practices that you have intentionally resisted or revised or taught against or around? So probably one of the large, one of the one of the um, most popular, um, I'd say, uh, thought or school of thought that's out there now in education is the belief that certain groups, certain groups of color, don't value education. Mm-hmm. They don't value education, and because they don't value it, the students don't do well. 
And so there's this sort of answering of when we look at achievement data and we see that there are these disparate gaps between uh, racial groups. Um, and we've had this, these, 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 these gaps are deeply entrenched and we've had them for a very long time. The explanation or the answer for that is, well, you know, certain people don't, certain groups just don't value education. Right. Their parents don't care. And I think that's a, that's a really big one, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Uh, it's a big one because in some cases, um, people will, you know, they'll try to cite even experiences that they've had. I've seen this and this person or these people didn't seem to care. And so um, it's a very formidable, I would say, a quite formidable um, belief system, but it's a very pervasive one. And it's one that I think is at the heart of some of our inability to really teach students well. So we have to, we have to address that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what have you, what do you do to address it in your own classrooms? Oh, okay. So I, one of the things, one of the very first things that we do within the first two or three weeks of class is students read articles historical articles about the pursuit of education and how groups, even at the risk of death, pursued education. We look mm-hmm. at uh, um, formerly enslaved peoples here in the United States and the ways in which they fought to create schools for themselves and their communities and how those efforts um, actually led many communities to build schools for white families that did not have access to schooling. Those who were in power, the, the economic, uh, economic elites, did not necessarily believe it was important to have schools for whites. But when you have black people who are cobbling together the resources that they have to create schools, to create opportunities for their children to learn, um, they, uh, the larger community said, okay, well, we're going to need to figure out a way to fund schooling for for white students as well. Um, so historically understanding that that argument is flawed. Right. right. And then I think also sort of moving students through, not necessarily giving them examples of parents and families who are, who are pushing um, um, for schooling, but rather talking to them about the very thought itself. Where did that idea come from? And what do you base that thought on? Mm-hmm. And helping them to unpack some of the normative values and even ways of looking at the world that are just built into that very belief, right? And then sometimes they say, oh, my goodness, I've just never thought about it like that. Um, those are the primary ways that I've done it. And then also sharing, they see, they read, we read case studies and eth- ethnographic research that has case studies embedded within it um, that show how um, families pursue education, but often are denied or not given a voice, or sometimes just have a really negative, you know, what does it mean to be a parent? Um, When you, what does it mean to be a parent who has had a very negative schooling experience? To then have children to then go to school and uh, with your child with your child and to feel that sort of tension of being in that place 
and not really even knowing how to communicate with the teacher because you yourself had a really negative experience. That doesn't mean that a parent doesn't care about education. Right. It just means that they have, they have a real sort of um, tension and anxiety with the institution of school. And that should not be something that is placed as a burden on the parent. It's to say, what, what are schools doing to break down those, those difficulties? Right. Sometimes I even give them exp- my own experiences and as experienced as I am with schools, as successful as I've been in education, I go to schools and sometimes feel helpless when I'm working with my own child. Right. And so helping them to understand those dynamics and to, to sort of question the normative way that they have looked at the world, which is raced and gendered. Uh, and classed through their own experiences with their own families, often my white students with their families that did not have those same kinds of feelings. Um, yeah, um, it seems to be, um, to me, it sounds like you are also using uh, history to uh, challenge concepts of or feelings of white privilege in the classroom. History seems to be a powerful way in which you can bring in that discussion. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you have seen through your work and your experience white privilege manifest itself in classrooms. Well, I think one one way that it happens is through these sort of normative sort of normative ways that people view the world. So an example um, that comes to mind immediately is I was teaching a class a couple of years ago. And I had a student that we were t- we were talking about parent and parent engagement, and they'd been looking at all of these various examples of of, of students who experienced inequitable opportunities to learn, either at the the level of gender or race or social class, culture, language. And I had a student to just say, I don't understand why these kinds of things are happening in schools. If, if something like this happened in my school, my mother would have gone to the principal, would have just, you know, told them that what they were doing was not appropriate or right, and they would have fixed it. And so I just think that the parents need to get more involved. Huh. And I had a, I actually had a, what we would call maybe a non-traditional student. It was my undergraduate course was a woman who was probably in her late 50s. Her children were well out of high school at that point, out of K-12 schooling. And she raised her hand and said, what makes you think that parents of color, parents who come from lower income backgrounds, parents of children who meet these different identity criteria, what makes you think that they don't talk to the principal, that they don't complain to the teacher when they see things happen that are inequitable. Sometimes, not sometimes, often, their voices are not heard. And it was it was this really powerful moment um, where the students, and I don't think it was just that student, but other students had never thought about, because they never had to think about, they had never been in a situation where they had to think about, the fact that maybe someone talks and they are not listened to. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that was just a, a it was a wonderful um, example of white privilege, this sort of invisibility of white privilege, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. playing out um, in a way that a reading might not might not um, illuminate, but it came up, right? It came up in this conversation. And since that time, I often will talk about voice and whose voice is heard or not heard um, within a school space. Um, so yeah. Well, um, I'm sorry, were you going to? No, no. Okay. Um, well, we just have a couple more questions to ask you. Um, first is, why why do you teach for racial and social justice? So I do this work because I I am deeply passionate about the power of knowledge. I would say that knowledge, more so than probably any other construct that I can think of, has impacted the way that I think about the world, even my trajectory in the world. Like, I would not be a professor today. I would not have pursued um, education in the way that I have if I had not been touched by the power of knowledge and by the power of a teacher that made knowledge available to me that up to that point I had I had no idea that it even existed. And so that sort of consciousness raising um, experience made me think about the really powerful role that teachers can play in the lives of students. You know, up to that point, I saw schooling, took school relatively serious, but it was something that I was supposed to do. I don't remember taking real joy in school. I, mean, I liked school, but I didn't think about it as being something that was bigger than school. I didn't think of it as an education, something that could really impact um, the way that I thought about my world. I thought about it as something for my future so that I could have prosperity, right? Um, and so that experience in my, during my undergraduate years made me really think deeply about teachers and knowledge. And um, there were a host of other things that I could have done and that I was actually slated to do, but I was drawn to teaching. Uh, didn't think I would become a teacher, but I became a teacher and then realized that I wanted to work with the folks who will be in the classroom with students or people who work with um, educators to help them think about the power of knowledge and how knowledge getting more or having less, having certain kinds versus others can truly um, impact how we think about the world and that it also has the power to transform what we do. Absolutely. And um, I think it's um, it's important that we are critical of you know the way the system operates. Um, but I I do have to ask what feels promising about the way faculty and administrators are approaching issues of racial injustice in the in higher education. What is the system doing correctly? Well, I think we are now getting to a place, and I'm, I'm starting to see some, I feel like there's some change in um, 
the the understanding that we need to talk about race. I mean, not I don't know if I I need to be careful to say that I see this at us at a at a at an institutional or structural level. I mean, in my own institution, I've seen that, but that may be idiosyncratic to mine. Because I imagine that there are probably universities across the country where there may be a tightening on the curriculum. But I feel like there's more of a, a, a belief that we need to be talking about these things. And when I talk to parents, because I'm I'm in several different kinds of circles daily with my work, sometimes K-12 schools or um, working with school districts, I feel, or just talking to parents, I feel like there's even conversations in some places where um, K-12 schools realize that they need to be doing this work. Um, I don't think that that is necessarily the case across the board, but I but I do think that we see more, I, I'm seeing more conversation than I did before. And I think that some of that has to do with just what's going on in our society. We sort of know that's the push-pull when, when there tends to be an intensification of in, perceived inequality or um, you know, racial violence or state-targeted violence, or how, however we might define that, we also see a, a sort of pushing back from, from, from the larger society that says, wait a minute, we've got to do something. So I'm hopeful not about what's happening in our larger society, but the fact that these things, when they happen, they are causing conversations to come up and it, it makes an entry point for us to talk. Yeah. And I do think that some people hear. Others become more resistant, sure. but I think some hear. And I also, I, I, I do feel like there is a shifting willingness on the part of younger people to talk about these issues more so than maybe 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, I, and I think that there, uh, some young people really want to try to better understand what's going on in our society. I mean, and they're even telling me, you know, I, my, my parents don't understand um, why this movement exists or why people would um, um, choose not to salute the flag. And I've been trying to talk to them about why that might be the case. I'm hearing that a lot more now than I've heard when I first arrived at UT. So um, the hopefulness is that these conditions open up a space for more conversation that we needed to have and hadn't been having. Yeah, that's great, uh, Dr. Brown. Part of the goal of this podcast was to provide um, a space to hold these conversations. So we really want to thank you uh, for joining us and sharing your scholarly and pedagogical insights. Um, it's been, you know, really eye-opening to hear your thoughts around trigger warnings and safe spaces and how we can push our students to challenge their assumptions and perspectives as well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. This podcast was produced by the amazing folks at UK's Faculty Media Depot, Alex Cuddedine and Stan Rosenbaum. And as always, we'd really want to hear from you. So please visit our website, 
www.uky.eu slash CELT, C-E-L-T slash podcast. You can leave your questions and comments for us there. You can also follow us on Twitter at UKCELT using the hashtag HigherJustice or like us on Facebook at UKCELT. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.